Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Welcome, dear reader, to Dispatches from the Armchair. There's so much news, and the world moves so fast. What are the big ideas and historical forces that are really shaping our world? Go deeper than the headlines with Dispatches from the Armchair. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Well, hello there. Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel. This not being a speakeasy, if you've been listening for the past few weeks, this is back to the normal grind. I'm here yeah. with, uh, well, the traditional guest. How you guys doing? Good to be back. Mr. Economics. That's me. And this is going to be on an episode that came out weeks ago, so we're kind of not in the same rhythm as used to be. This is going to be on the uh, the Boxer Rebellion. So uh, if you're audio listeners, usually it's under the term discussion. So this is back to the old format. But I think I'll take a little bit of time to kind of explain what's going on. Because if you've been listening to many of these episodes, you've noticed that all of a sudden things got a bit crazy. Uh, we introduced a new series, which is the Speak Easy series, where me and a lot of my friends who might be history lovers or just random dudes, like I had a political buddy who came on and talked to Canadian politics, which... Um, that episode kind of flopped a little bit, but uh, we'll see if it picks up. Uh, it's more of an open format. We're just kind of talking goofy stuff. Uh, it could be anime, movies, freaking a lot of Godzilla. A lot of freaking Godzilla. I can thank Ian for that one. Yeah. But, uh... Hopefully some more gaming. We haven't really talked much gaming, and I find that's kind of where we need to hit out. But needless to say... This is uh, different from this podcast, which is, this podcast is attached to my YouTube channel series, so these are based off of the actual episodes, in a chronological order, at your convenience, and if you're an audio listener, uh, by this point, the Boxer Rebellion and the Russo-Japanese War has come out as a duo package, so we'll probably do a Russo-Japanese War podcast, God knows, uh, weeks from now, and that'll be probably really exciting, because... I think I spent a full week editing that episode at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're back to uh, we're back to a whole bunch of names that we can't pronounce and a whole bunch of people that I don't know who they are. But uh, I really enjoyed this episode, and we're finally back to a point where there's there's some fireworks happening. So it's kind of interesting to see. <laughs> poor poor China is just getting yeah. ripped apart from every literally from every angle. You know, the famous painting. It's uh, it's a bit, China's like a big pie. And there's all these like countries. It's all the Kaisers, the emperors cutting from it. It's, yeah. Uh, this is the famous event that glorifies that picture. That's why it was made. Yeah, and it's uh, holy crap. It's it's hard because they're getting ripped apart from foreigners. Everybody trying to take their piece of the pie, but also there's so much infighting inside, as we discussed in previous episodes. Yeah. Rebellions le- left, right, and center. Always. And you still have that that giant divide of traditionalists versus we'll call it progress or modernization you know yeah, I, I actually i when i was writing the script i ran into that too where my sources would call them the reformers mm-hmm. or they wouldn't never use the term liberals and it, i don't think it equates to liberalism but some would call them the progressives like um prince duan he was a progressive but uh, the other prince 
sorry, Prince Ching was a progressive. Prince Zhuan was actually a hardcore conservative, a traditionalist. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we can call them like that. It, it simplifies it. Yeah, it comes down to that. Uh, you know, did they want to try and model themselves more after the European or the, the Western ideal and quote-unquote modernize? Or did they want to stick with their traditionalist values? And, unfortunately, uh, people don't see a gray area in there. They see you're either on this side of the line, you're on that side of the line. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. It really, They really don't see a gray area. There's no, no one comes to the table like saying, okay, we'll do a little bit of this, but do that, you know, no, they, it, it, it's full-blown wars whenever these big, you know, events occur, uh, whenever they come to the table for something like the imperial examinations that's been in Chinese history forever, they want to get rid of them. They want to do, you know, what we see as today as like, uh, our education program, universities, degrees, like specialization. And that was like, oh my god, the traditionalists couldn't handle that. No, no we're not doing that. It's not happening. Yeah. And uh, I, I find it very weird what we were talking about a little bit off camera is that throughout this whole, throughout this whole rebellion and this whole time, the, the emperor is basically a puppet. He, yeah. he, he's there as a symbol. But he doesn't really get anything done. The strings are all being pulled from elsewhere. So Yeah, to explain to the audience, because it is going to be confusing for anyone who doesn't have not even a light bit of knowledge of Chinese history. Like, you have to have quite a bit of knowledge. Um, the emperor in question is Emperor Guangzhou. He's, uh, he's related to who is the most probably one of the most famous people in Chinese history, Emperor Dowager Jixi. And she was not actually legitimately in charge, like you said, of anything. Mm -hmm. But she was. She was using her her relative like a, like a hostage. He was the guy that was supposed to be in charge. He was supposed to be calling the shots. But if he ever did anything out of line, as we've seen in this episode, when he was allying himself with the progressives, trying to do some reforms, she immediately put him under house arrest and just took over. And she does it periodically in history. She basically put him in a timeout. Just said, you, go, yeah. sit, go sit in the corner. Yeah, he, she shoved him. Uh, he went to their summer palace and she just locked him up over there. You go sit in the corner, Auntie's going to fix the country now. So that's... Uh, Auntie does fix the country, apparently, a lot. <laughs> so that's a little bit weird. And I mean, it's it's unfortunate because it seems like these series of events were really kind of the nail in the coffin for the Qing Dynasty. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, the paint was on the wall, but this, this was a big bang to go out. <laughs> yeah. Much. So let's dive into it a little bit. Let's talk about the episode because there are definitely a lot of different battles, a lot of places trying to be held or being fought over. So why don't you uh, give a quick uh, brief thing for the audience about the episode, and then we'll talk about a few points yeah. that I picked out. As I've done traditionally, I'll give a very brutal summarization. Mm. So um, if you go on YouTube right now and you look up this event, most YouTubers will cover just what is the... We call it the Siege of the Legations, the Foreign Quarters yeah. in Beijing. Um, that actually... I mean, it's very important, of course, to the overall uh, event, but what actually ended up happening was a series of battles that occurred within kind of the Yellow Sea region and the Shandong province and near the Beijing area, where uh, a bunch of Western forces were trying to rescue their buddies who were stuck in the foreign quarters. So what happens was, before all this, um, a group, a secret society, uh, amongst all the other secret societies in China this period, known as, in English, the Boxers, um, Better said in Chinese as Yu Chen. I think I pronounced that right. Uh, originally, and I want to make sure I say this right, it originally meant righteous and harmonious fist, Yu Chen, 
but they changed their name eventually to be called the Righteous and Harmonious Militia because associating yourself with martial arts, um, not that it was actually outlawed, but it was frowned upon because a lot of secret societies in China that practice martial arts were all anti-Qing dynasty. So if you were practicing martial arts and you were a secret society, you look like you were basically rebelling against the dynasty and they'll execute you. And they wanted to win support, you know, from the current rulers in the imperial court, the Qing dynasty and the Manchus. So these boxers are a bunch of youthful bandits. Uh, China's going through a terrible time. We've covered the history of the two opium wars, excuse me, which uh, had unequal treaties, which depleted the country of silver, shoved opium down the throats of most of the population. And yes, opium is rampant. There's a lot of abuse, a lot of people losing their jobs because of droughts and stuff at this time and just falling into opium dens. Yeah. So, population particularly in Shandong province is going through a really hard time so they're going through all of this turmoil and what do they see missionaries everywhere Christian missionaries from uh, Germany from France Catholics uh, probably some Orthodox Russians who knows making churches doing all this basically stamping down on farmers because a lot of farmers have lost their land and now churches are being erected where you know maybe your uncle had uh, grown something so uh, it's aggravating the population to say the least but what specifically aggravates the population is bandits that are stealing from everyone because let's be honest uh, they're hurting and they're gonna res you know the youth are gonna do what they have to do to survive the bandits began to convert to Catholicism because there was a bylaw in the system where you couldn't pursue anyone who was a Christian because they had a special exemption it was to yep. protect foreigners basically but the Chinese who join these Catholics could get exempt as well. It's like a Catholic version of diplomatic immunity, which basically... Uh, yeah, It's kind of like uh, it's like the Mafia, too. If anybody's seen Lethal Weapon 2, you know how that worked out. <laughs> so that pissed off uh, one secret society, which was the Big Sword Society, who their, their purpose was to thwart banditry. Uh, I didn't go into it too much this episode, because obviously there's, it's too much to cover, but uh, they were particularly angry that these bandits were getting away with this. Regardless, to carry on. So, at the same time, unequal treaties, the hurting of China, the Qing dynasty looks weak to the whole population of China because they've lost all these wars and they're extremely appeasing to the foreigners who are just stamping down on everything. Pretty much, you know, they're not officially colonizing China, even though they're trying to. They're trying to actually take territory, but more importantly, they're economically exploiting all the Chinese people. And, you know, enough was enough. Certain groups rose up and they targeted, at first, the Qing dynasty because they wanted to change their government and, you know, force the government to do something about it. But then this began to be directed towards the Christians. Mm -hmm. The Chinese Christians first, then the foreigners. They started to attack them. And these are where the boxers really come in. Because the boxers, basically, they, they had a fervor for going after the Christian community first. <clears throat> When the boxers realized that there's only so far they can get away with this, I mean, there were illiterate, unarmed peasants. Um, there's not so, so much they could do. There was a lot of them. Apparently, there could have been up to 100,000 of them at one point in kind of the Shandong province. They needed allies, and who do you need? You need the government. So they wanted to get support from the Qing dynasty, the, uh, the conservatives in the court. So this is where they start to prance around, screaming out, uh, it's a famous Chinese phrase, which in English translates to, like, uh, protect the Qing, expel the foreigners. And uh, they, they, they didn't go unheard. Uh, some of the conservatives thought, hey, this is a great situation. 
everyone hates the foreigners, they want to get rid of them, rightfully so. Maybe we can use the boxes to our advantage and, uh, you know, get them riled up and join them and let's attack the foreigners. Because the foreigners are, you know, they're living within all sorts of cities in China at this point in what is called foreign quarters, specifically in Beijing is the big one, which uh, if you watch the episode, you see there's like different sections of where they are and they're protecting. And uh, basically the imperial court of the Qing dynasty was split. We had the progressives, as we call them, the conservatives. The conservatives, some of them said, oh, you know, maybe we can join the boxers, use the situation to our advantage, and maybe we can finally push the foreigners out. The vast majority of people are like, no, these are unarmed, stupid peasants. Uh, this isn't going to amount to anything, and we can't yeah. possibly win. The vast majority actually believe this, even a lot of conservatives. And uh, we'll say the progressives were fighting to, no, let's appease the foreigners, let's put down the boxers. Quell the, re quell the rebels, as they've been quelling rebellions forever. Yeah, well, let's be real. I think there was a bit of a lack of faith in the boxers, too, because like yeah, you sure. said, the whole thing around them was very mystical and almost culty in the fact that uh, yeah. you talked about in the episode, some people believe them to be bulletproof or, they themselves arm, that. or stuff like that. Well, and it's if any of you follow any MMA or martial arts stuff, Joe Rogan podcast, any stuff like that, <laughs> There's a lot of discussions about the McDojo going on in the last, oh let's God, say, five, yeah. six years. And it's really funny to see, but at the same time, it is kind of sad because these people rise up and it gets to a point where, yeah, they might be skilled martial artists to a certain extent, but they get to a point where they're spewing so much bullshit to people that start following them. What's worse than that is when they start to believe their own bullshit. Which did happen. A lot of them did believe. Uh, there's initial fights where they started to... When they started to fight, let's say, not even uh, foreigners, when they started to fight Qing forces uh, who were armed, they thought, like, apparently there's these primary sources where they actually did think they were bulletproof and they would just human wave attack running into gunfire and then they learned that, yeah, no... They weren't bulletproof. It didn't work. <laughs> And, and that might be one of the reasons why at least a few level-headed, we'll call them conservatives, thought better of, uh, well, sorry, not conservatives, the other it's both progressives. No one but really but, but the more level-headed people thought, okay, maybe we're going to take a step back and not uh, jump on this bandwagon here. But, but it seemed to be that those that did go into the following were very, very culty and kind of... Uh, Absolutely culty kind of devoted to that so that's a little weird but i, I could go on into like they're they're kind of an offset of a notorious secret society group called the white lotus that was like anti-ching trying to overthrow the dynasty it gets it gets so deep there's actually like another 200 years of another martial arts history where there was rebellions like 100 years before this event with like these famous martial artists who thought they were gonna overthrow it's crazy but uh, needless to say during all of this as we were talking about with the emperor and uh, Dowager Jiji, the emperor thought that the only way to kind of like prolong the Qing dynasty at this point and keep the people happy was to do reforms, which was right. Like he was absolutely correct. Um, the Wuzhu reforms was a hundred days where they were trying to put in all these radical societal changes that get rid of the imperial exam, like yep. I said education it's not necessarily all westernized ideals but just imagine they want to put in like responsible government bureaucracies real police forces real military like self-strengthening the military all sorts of stuff it's a ton of stuff and it also meant the depowering of Gigi because she was quote-unquote the unofficial kind of I'll call her a regent she's yeah. been known to be yeah she's been called a regent a lot in the sources and uh it also meant that they basically had to forcefully 
put her under house arrest. So there was kind of a coup d'etat situation going on. She did not like that. So, uh, as I said in the episode, um, there was an attempt to uh, put her under house arrest, and the person who was sent to kill her great advocate, who was also maybe her lover, which is like little old people who like well anyways I, I even made like a remark and it's it's a really weird story this whole like she might have been in love with this dude um instead the guy doesn't kill the guy he just tells him of the event and she switches on the emperor and then puts him under house arrest because you know she figured it out and then she completely thwarts all the reforms he got done uh kills all of the buddies he had that were pr promoting this um they called them like the gentlemen of Wuzhu, I believe, and a lot of them got executed in public. It's pretty horrifying stuff, and there's pictures of it. I couldn't put it in the episode because YouTube does not like that. And um, then, to complicate things further, this is all occurring where the with the boxers getting more and more powerful and getting closer to Beijing. The boxers make some attempts to kill some people near Beijing, and then the imperial court's kind of panicking. They're saying like, "What are we gonna do?" She sits down, uh, Emperor Stowager, she, she sits down, and she listens to both sides. So, as we already said, one side is like, let's use the situation, join the boxers, and try and expel the foreigners. The other side of the aisle says, they're illiterate yeah. peasants. They can't do anything. We probably... Not to mention, yeah. we need to modernize. We need to get with exactly. the times. We probably can't even win. Uh, they'll just crush us. So, interestingly enough, she said this. If we quell these boxers, it's the end of the dynasty because they were extremely popular with the populace. Mm -hmm. This is almost kind of like a quasi-communist revolution at this point. Yeah. So she's like, we're damned if we do either side. She's like, if we try to expel the foreigners, we're probably going to lose. If we quell the boxers, we're probably going to lose the dynasty. So in her mind, it all comes back to Mono. She's going to lose power. Mm -hmm. So she makes a very famous uh, quote, and I don't have it here. It goes something along the lines, they got away too easy on the second opium war. Like, we ended it too early. She's like, if we're going to, you know, if this dynasty is going to end, we're going to stand up and just die fighting. So she took the stand, and they officially, although they're secretly, they don't tell the Westerners they're officially endorsing the boxers. They're playing coy about it. Mm -hmm. But they basically surround the legation in Beijing, and they give him 24 hours. He say, all of you get out of here. And there's about, well, there's not eight nations, but we're only going to talk about the eight nations because the other ones are too small and insignificant. I don't even talk about them in the episode, like Portugal or Spain and shit. But, yeah, um, but you have France, you have Germany, you have... Uh, Russia, Japan, Austro-Hungary, uh, United States, yeah, uh, Britain. So these eight nations are basically stuck. In the Galatian quarters, and uh, Maxwell, the uh, the British ambassador to China, he decides to just take command, take charge, which uh, is pretty interesting. He's a ballsy guy, and they defend themselves uh, with a handful, like a few hundred people, and uh, they have all these Chinese uh, Christians um, in one of the buildings in the British embassy, uh, the British legation, basically protecting them because they're going to be killed as well because. The boxers yeah. were killing the Chinese Christians. The, the boxers were going after the Chinese first. I guess yeah. they viewed them as some form of traitor or of course. something like that. You, so. you know, the boxers started off as anti-Qing, then they switch, and then they're like with the Qing, so they're targeting Christians, and then Christians just becomes just foreigners, and it's a mishmash, and they're just going after all these people. Mm. So uh, kind of a war has begun. So, of course, um, the people trapped in the legation are trying to send words to their countries to come save them, and... Uh, it's called the Seymour Expedition. Eventually, an, an eight-nation alliance force 
with this is like a ragtag group of people that they managed to grab goes on an expedition to try to get to Beijing but the boxers are being supported by the Qing forces now uh, some of them a lot of them aren't uh, regional warlords and governors like our friend Li Hojiang or Yan Chikai are not abiding by this so they've basically told all their forces not to do anything so a large part of China is not taking part in this but uh, Hui Muslim forces of the Qing dynasty are on the side of the boxers and they basically attack Seymour as he's coming up. They cut the railway lines and then Seymour ends up having to retreat. And as he retreats, they call for more forces to come to eventually help and save the legation. And we talked before the episode, you had a question about this kind of uh, situation where Seymour is on the retreat. Yeah, well... I mean, the first thing I wanted to mention was more about the, the generals themselves, because if you think of almost any other nation and any other, at least modern military, you know, orders come down from the top, they go all the way down, but it's it's very rare that a country is sectioned so much within itself. Yeah. But when you have, be, be it aristocrats or military leaders or anybody that controls groups of people and especially groups of soldiers, for them to just turn around and say, no, we're not going to do that. Is, is really a testament as to how badly divided China was. Never unified. It, historically, it, it, there's never really a point to get unified until arguably after World War II. Uh, Which is weird because, it, you know, we're getting into speculation now, but if China was fully unified terrifying. back then, yeah. number one world power a hundred times over. They controlled the world economy for millennia. Yeah, and, and, and that's being partially divided. Like I said, if they were unified, it uh, you, you're talking some scary kind of monster. But that's getting, you know, very speculative anyways. Before the episode, I was trying to explain ethnicity in China to Justin. And much like the audience, I, I expect there's probably a large proportion is just uh, mostly American from the demographics I see in analytics. And China's, there is no such thing as Chinese people. There's uh, so many groups. There's Hakka, there's Han, there's Manchu, there's all sorts of different ethnicity groups. Majority are Han Chinese, but at this time period for the Qing Dynasty, the Manchu are in charge, but the majority are other groups. So a lot of anti-Manchu sentiment, and it really plays into the politics and the warlordism. Like I said, these governors, we'll call them, who had these pockets in these other provinces, had the most modern militaries too. They were, the, they were actually progressives who wanted the westernization. They wanted a modern military. And they just stood back and they said, this is stupid. We are not going against the Westerners. We're just going to probably suppress the boxers or at least pretend we're doing that. And we have no part in this. Yeah, we're just going to stay where we are, not doing anything. They're, and it's... Yeah. They're actually called the mutual protection zoners or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, that's the other thing I wanted to get into because there's, there's two specific times you mentioned one is, like you said, the Seymour expedition when he's trying to come into China to rescue. And the other one is when they attack the forts. For and the fourth time, and it's the, called the Fourth Battle of the Dagu Forts. It's uh, not, not well known as a battle because it gets yeah. kind of like shadowed by the other events that are going on. But it was actually pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, but what I found weird about both these incidences is you said when Seymour's forces were attacked the first time... You said the boxers took over 200 casualties, as did the, uh, sorry, not the Russians, uh, the, whoever was allied to the boxers. Oh, at this point? The Muslims, like, sorry, the Muslim. Uh, you can call them, because their, their ethnicity is like, we call them like Hui Muslims. Uh, they're not, uh, I 
I, I myself don't know the history today if the Uyghur Muslims are this group, but uh, back okay. then they would have been called the Gangju Force. They were Gangju Muslims. Okay, so basically you you mentioned that the boxers and the Gangju Muslims had both taken over 200 casualties yeah. trying to attack Seymour's forces and stop him from coming in. And you said Seymour took maybe seven casualties and 50 wounded, somewhere around there. Anybody who's seen the episode can rewind and correct me if I'm a little off. But it seems to me that Seymour would have won that horribly, and yet you said he retreated. Yeah. Which um, I find very weird. Because if I get attacked, and all of a sudden we're slapping these people around, because like you said, they're basically unarmed peasants. Oh, yeah. The Maybe the Hui Muslims were a little better armed? No, they were terrifying. They were sharpshooters. They were armed, and they were on horseback, a lot of them. The it's the it's Okay. But the overwhelming numbers are, are these boxers that are just kind of being like, pushed in front and they're just human waves with and imagine like guys with pikes and stuff some of them had firearms but not much it's antiquated stuff but that's my point is i i'm kind of surprised that they would get attacked win in such a staggering fashion and still decide to back up uh in military terms they never expected the railway line to get cut they didn't expect to have to go on foot from oh god where were they they were in fang I think it's Fang. Yeah, yeah. So they were from Tianjin. Yeah, you said they had to march on foot. Yeah, and then they had to go from Fangliang over to Beijing, which is actually a pretty. It's a hefty freak. It's a hefty march. These maps I use, they don't really show how far these places are, but they're being attacked by all these forces that have better movement than them, and they could have been encircled at any point. So from Seymour's point of view, yeah, no, he had to retreat, and the only place that was safe was where they had come from from the last railway, which would have been Tianjin. And uh, unbeknownst to him, Tianjin was actually going to be under attack soon uh, by the same groups of people. It's right. mostly Gangju Muslims uh, with some boxers. Although the boxers are kind of, they're like, uh, what do you want to call them? Pawns and all this? They're like the, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. the meat the, for the grinder kind of. Yeah, uh, they, the cannon fodder. Thing. But uh, yeah, no, he took, uh, what was scary was they were running back onto their trains and the Gangju were sharpshooting them. So they didn't, see, they couldn't see the enemy, and every day they would be attacked, and they would be setting firecrackers at night, and they wouldn't let them sleep. So every day his men would get worse and worse condition, worse condition. So he knew it was a terrible situation. Same thing they do in the legation quarters. I couldn't really emphasize it enough, but they didn't let these people sleep. Mm. It's crazy. Like people probably thought I was joking. I, I used like one image of like these fireworks going off. But the emphasis was supposed to be that fireworks are going up every freaking night to make it yeah. sound like gunfire and stuff. Yeah. It's terrifying. Well, it's not a bad idea if you're trying to, you know, if the enemies hold up somewhere and you basically want to starve them out of there. Okay. You know, you drain all resources. You drain food, water, sleep, supplies, whatever you can. But, yeah, and the other battle was, uh, to get back to what we were talking about, is the Daigo Forts, where, and again, we're going to get into something we've talked about in previous episodes, but where... You say that they took heavy, heavy losses yeah. while trying to take the Daigo Forts, and yet they still won. Where people holding the Daigo Forts had almost nothing, but they were like, well, we won, but we're just going to leave and let you have this anyways. I'm a little bit guilty in this one. Uh, I don't specialize in Chinese history per se, and this is actually all out of my territory. I'm, as you know, it's the Pacific War Channel, as I'll say to people. When I was reading the secondary sources i don't even know i had primaries for this one they were attacking the forts they took heji casualties as they're you know charging up the mud and trying to take the forts from what i've learned especially with the battles over the dagu forts because this happened in the opium wars too yep 
you don't take a lot of casualties as the defender. This is going back to the days of the, the shitty cannons. Yep. It's the same place. Yeah. Those are the same forts. That's what I said. This so is, This is going back a ways. We've been here before, people. The sources say light casualties. So, and that's pretty unusual um, in these battles, because usually the Chinese really, like, the casualty numbers are horrifying. I think what ended up happening, as I mentioned in the episode, I was saying to you, so the forts are located on different sides of the, um, the opening of the riverway. So when they took these forts, I assume they killed a few of the guys over here, and then the most, most of them had retreated by the time the guys got onto the island there. When they started to shoot at the other forts, all those guys had left, because they didn't shoot back. Hmm. So that's why I believe they didn't have many casualties. I think they all just fled. And yeah, I mean, so um, maybe they they just saw they were going to be overrun and took off. But. An, another indicator that they ran, um, I mentioned in in the episode, there was a few German-made um, war vessels that were in the port around yeah. the Dagger Forts, and the Alliance just all of a sudden ran right over them and just boarded them and took them. They didn't even fight back. So it just it doesn't seem like the Chinese forces were. Seems like they were unprepared in. almost. Yeah, it's, uh, well, you have to remember, just like the governors who said no to the orders to fight the foreign legation, like, a lot of these people, the Dagger Forts, like, who's to say their officers aren't just like, no, no, let's get out of here. Peace. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's speculating at this point, but it would be a fair argument, I think. If I did a, an episode on this battle only, I'm sure I would have dwelled into it deeper and found, like, very specific information. It's it's on me. It's in my bad. I didn't go too specific into it, but... Well, uh, again, the... This is a compil. This is a compilation of so many different rebellions and small battles. We're not going to delve, uh, you know, I, shoulders deep into every one of them. But I just thought it was weird at first, you know, hearing the numbers and reading the stats that that you put out, and I'm like, that kind of doesn't make sense. You don't concede a game when you're up by ten runs, but okay, I, I, I kind of get that. Just you wait. The next episode, and it's a doozy because I crammed. Everybody, like, I'm gonna be the only guy on YouTube who did the full Russo Japanese War. No one has done the full one. I'm saying this honestly because I watched all of them. I did every single battle. The Japanese are fighting the Russians. The Japanese never have more numbers than the Russians. The Japanese, every single battle is offensive. The Russians are on the defensive. The Russians withdrew every single fight. It's incredible how sometimes yeah. this happens. So let's get back into the taking of the Daigo Forts because this is something else I thought was very interesting. And this is starting to be a pattern we're seeing in, you know, in China's history, I guess I would yeah, say. Yeah, those Daigo Forts just go down. <laughs> well, not just that, but it's the misinformation yes. of, the, of basically the guys that were holding the Daigo Forts going back going, we won a great victory. Yep. And... Kind of omitting the fact that, well, we still gave up the forts anyways, but we killed more of them than they killed of us, so yeah, you know, we're awesome. You have to imagine she got like a, a piece of paper that's like, we killed this many of them, and we lost an insignificant number. It was a great victory. And she's like, oh, that's that's swell, nice. We're going to win this. And Not it's realizing like, that they dot, don't have those forts anymore. Yes, dot, dot, dot. They have the dagger forts. They're landing like 50,000 guys, and they're going to come soon. <laughs> <laughs> like like yeah. i don't understand okay obviously we're not talking about a modern era it's not like they can send an email or they have satellite images but holy shit has misinformation been kind of a thorn in china's side Actually, in a lot of these major conflicts would they have had telegram in the show i don't know if the ching had telegram 
Anyway, needless to say, they had messengers of some sort. I thought they should have had it. And they probably did. Yeah, but this basically comes down to people just bullshitting to save their own ass from yeah. the hangman's noose. It's uh, it's the messenger syndrome, in the, especially in the Qing Dynasty. It's every, every episode I've done up to this point, it's the same story. They go back to the Emperor and they're like, hey, we won a great battle. And the Emperor's like, oh, that's great. And then by the end of the war, the Emperor's like, what the hell is going on? It's like, yeah, we were lying. We've lost every battle. We're going to die. The king is under attack. Like, like, that's so stupid, but it seems to be a pattern, you know? So that that definitely didn't help them at all. Uh, To conclude the summary of all of this brutal summarization, uh, so a larger force, um, Seymour eventually, he gets to Tianjin. There's a huge terrifyingly bloody battle where the japanese beat the hell out of the uh the Qing forces in Tianjin, and it's bloody as hell they take it over more forces come after the dagu forts battle uh becomes the ghastly expedition we call it and that's like 50 men 50 000 men strong it's a much bigger force eight nation alliance all these uh, countries coming to save the legations who are under siege uh, for 55 days you would imagine that the uh, foreign legations would have crumbled, and they should have. Um, as I said in the episode, what actually ended up happening is the people that were sympathetic towards not joining the boxers were actively thwarting the siege. So basically, the only people really doing anything were the boxers and the um, Gangju Muslims. The other uh, side, the Peking uh, field force, as we call them, and the progressive officers, uh, particularly Rong Yu, um, he's actively like not allowing artillery to be placed he's not giving like ammunition uh he's giving food to the legation secretly he's doing everything basically to help behind this yeah at one point you said he was even hiding artillery or something like that yeah Uh, from the the muslim general well sorry the the general the muslims actually isn't a muslim he was a han chinese um he was demanding this group of artillery uh from rongalu and it would have broke the walls uh they would have easily took it all over and rongalu would say Oh, I'm going to get it next week. You know, the guy is like... Uh, <laughs> the, the check's in the mail, it's yeah, coming. Yeah. You know, he, he was just bullshitting him and uh, no one was the wiser. Basically just stalling for time, waiting for... Yeah, he's actually the guy that saved the, the legations, arguably. So the legations never fall. The ghastly expedition eventually gets there and everyone just scatters. And Gigi uh, has to run um, away. She eventually comes back into power. Um, Gongju comes back into power but the Qing dynasty as a result of this is this is the nail in the coffin and uh, what it, when's it what ends up happening I didn't go into it too much in the episode was uh, it's called the boxer protocol and it's just uh, it's a it's like a treaty like all the wars that are lost but this yeah. time they were facing a eight nation alliance and a other a bunch of other nations just came to the table at the last minute who didn't partake in this like Sweden Norway Portugal and yeah, stuff. Yeah, oh yeah, you owe us something too. And it's... They all got you a know, piece of the pie. We are going back to, not that it wasn't justified, but we are going back to the hundred years of embarrassment or whatever it is that you call it. Yeah, it's a hundred years of humiliation. And the, and, sorry, I apologize. Hundred years humiliation and the unequal treaties where now, now we get into a little bit of the financial reparations that China had to go through. And holy crap. It's, I think, the worst that the Qing Dynasty got. It was, and I, I had to get the figures here because I am not a finance guy. Yeah, what did you write exactly here? Four, I want... So 450 million tails of silver, that's about 18 tons worth, and that's going to equal to about an estimated 333 United States dollars million to be paid over 30 United million. States dollars million. That's, that's I said that like a champ. This is why I cover the economics and he covers the history. 
It stonks so, people. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> to be paid over 39 years. Yeah, so basically, this nation who's crumbling politically, we've already talked about in previous episodes how their, how their economy is absolute crap because of all the money lost during the opium wars and the opium crisis, trying to mop that up. And the opium trade continuing. <laughs> yeah, but also uh, a lot of their trades have been have gone elsewhere, like we showed in previous episodes, be it yeah. tea, silk, all this stuff is all... They're being overtaken by many countries all over the place. Foreign traders are just kicking down the doors, making, you know, basically setting up shop in China's backyard without China being able to do anything about it, you yeah. know? Uh, oh god to, to, to quote a bad tv show but basically everybody's shitting on china's head and they're supposed to say thanks for the hat i just realized you were not in the discussion episode for the episode before this one which was the sino japanese no nope, i missed that one the only thing really to know is like china lost its influence in korea so business-wise it just lost its main kind of source of revenue that it was selling to because it would you know yep. kind of abuse korea a lot for lack of better words so yeah, so time. it's, uh, and now all of a sudden they have to pay out this huge, for, for lack of a better term, we'll call it reparations check. And to even eight. though it is over time, this is a, this is just a stupid amount of money that they basically have to put into the pockets of the people that are taking them over and collapsing yep. their political system right and now. This is the thing that struck my interest. This is why I wrote this down. So in the end, they have to pay us for 39 years, right? They ended up paying a lot of it in gold, which actually, for some reason, I don't understand why, it increased the interest rate charge on it. By the end of it, when they finally paid this all off, the actual payment ended up being something, amount reaching, it says a 1 billion tails worth. Yeah, so more than two, more than two times the original amount. Uh, payment uh, ended December the 31st, 1940. Uh, for, for all those wondering, during World War One, since China declared war on Austria-Hungary and Germany, um, they knocked that part off, though. They stopped paying them. So at least there's that for them. <laughs> Whoop-de-doo. And, and if we look in here, okay, Germany was 20%, so that's a huge... Oh, yeah, so they have to pay percentages per country, too. So, uh, Russia... Germany was the, Germany was the second biggest, so that was a little yeah. bit, mind you, in... By the time you get to World Wars One and Two, you're at the tail end of this payment, so they've already paid seventy five percent. Uh, God, I don't have it here. I think no, they for World War One, they before they cut it off, they had paid something like thirty percent of what they owed them, at least. So they at so least cut off uh, a good chunk. Got cut off a, a good chunk of what they owed Germany, but you know, l l let's agree that Austria and whatnot is insignificant. Germany's the only one of those that really mattered. Yeah, but Russia is twenty nine percent. That's the biggest one. France sixteen. Britain eleven. It's funny that Britain allowed France to get more than them. That's not that doesn't usually happen. Japan yeah. eight. Even though Japan did the most of the fighting, arguably, United States seven percent. Italy seven percent. Belgium, who had no part in this, two percent. Austria Hungary one percent. Who was part of this? The Netherlands. Like zero point one seven. Yeah, well, Spain, that's the like thing. That. The, the, these are just countries looking for a little, a little peaky handout, you know. Yeah, they're grabbing. Norway, Sweden, I think Portugal, that's she Spain. Cheeky as hell that Sweden and Norway just got in there. Like you, they have not been relevant empires for a long time at this point. But yeah. whatever. The the one that surprises me a little bit is the Netherlands, even though they weren't directly involved in this conflict. 
we've seen how active they were in trade and you know marketing merchant thing yeah. in this time period they still they, they have uh so i'm kind of surprised they didn't get their foot a little bit more into that door but uh, uh they were weak at this point but later on just you know in the in the time of world war ii dutch east indies they had all the oil yeah, well, the, the, that's kind of my point. You know, if, if anybody was going to get in a money deal like this, I'd figure the Dutch East India Trading Company. But it's, uh, yeah, the, that ended up being, like we said, uh, as far as I'm concerned, kind of the nail in the coffin because the, the country's falling apart politically, socially, and now on top of that, financially, it's just the, the walls are coming down, the roof's caving in. Yeah, I think a great way to actually end this episode is uh, what I'm not able to really do in the episodes, talk about the long-term consequences. I kind of just allude every episode to like, this is going to start the next war, or this is going to have this effect, which will lead to the Pacific War. But this time, this is actually pretty important. So the Boxer Rebellion, it, this is funny to say, it ceased uh, the colonization of China, officially, so all the Western powers realized after this event that they were not going to actually take territory. They might get concessions, like uh, people know that in Shanghai, for example, there was an international concession and there's people and there's foreign legations. That's fine and dandy, it's economics, whatever, but they're not taking any foreign territory, except for kind of Britain with Hong Kong. Oh, that's not that's the one that's like we're, the we're not taking territory we're only occupying yeah. it using it for trade and uh but changing it to christianity they, but, yeah. they, f they finally realized that they couldn't deal with the population the easiest way was to deal with the ruling dynasty so they and their thinking were like okay from this point on uh you know what asia is probably more in the hands of japan or russia at this point uh they're both the contenders and they kind of stepped back and they allow them to have greater spheres of influence. They're not out of the game or anything. They're still trading and exploiting. But they have taken their foot out of the pool, so to say. And Japan has really pressed in. But Russia has even more so. So this is what kind of leads into the Russo-Japanese War. The whole time this is happening, all these countries sent all these men to, you know, rescue these people. Except Russia put, like... A million men into Manchuria under the guise it was protecting railway stations that it was building, uh, the East Chinese Railway. Russia told everybody, specifically told Japan, oh, as soon as this crisis is over, the 1.5 like million troops that we put in Manchuria are going to leave because Japan is really not cool about that. This is their sphere of influence. This is pretty threatening. Sounds like a whole lot of horseshit to me, but yeah, they don't leave. This event stops in 1901. By 1903, they're saying again, oh yeah, by 1903 we're going to leave. They don't leave. Japan is directly threatened by this. Then, during all of this, at the same time, the, uh, in Liaodong, the peninsula, Port Arthur is given over as a lease to Russia, which is the same port that Japan had arguably won in the Sino-Japanese War, and then they told them that they had to leave. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of this rushes Japan the wrong way, but Japan is in no situation to fight Russia. Russia at this time, people might not notice it. The Russian Empire is actually terrifying. They yep. have like the biggest army. They have a pretty, pretty large navy, and it, it's scary. But you know, pretty, Japan, pretty ahead of well, not ahead of their times, but very stocked up weaponry wise as well. I think inefficient, big numbers, not good commanders, a lot of corruption. Anyways, 
But uh, Japan tries to negotiate with Russia, and you know Japan even like makes a pretty big compensation. Like, okay, um, we're gonna control Korea. That's gonna be our sphere of influence, and then you can have Manchuria. Just don't come over here, and we're gonna respect each other. Russia immediately says to them, "No, we're gonna cut this little line, the 39th parallel in Korea, and we're gonna do what we want in Korea, and you just don't come up here." So Japan secretly attacks them. And then declares war the next day, which is cheeky because it's what they do in Pearl Harbor. And Japan beats Russia. Uh, the biggest underdog story of all time shocks the entire world. But anyways, Boxer Rebellion. That's an episode we'll, that oh, I'm interested to get into. So It's a crazy episode. But, so the Boxer Rebellion, uh, it's the nail in the coffin, though, as far as the Qing Dynasty is concerned. All this other stuff that's happening in China is against their will. They have nothing to do with it. The Chinese population is watching as the Russians and the Japanese are fighting within their country and they're just kind of like dwindling their thumbs. Like, we can't do anything about it because our government is so ineffective. Government is in shambles. There's going to be about 50 different revolutions that are going to occur between like 1900 to 1911. And this is all going to eclipse with the actual end of the Qing Dynasty, which is the Xinhai Revolution or the 1911 Revolution in which... I won't say who, but a certain amount of people in history are going to take over. And they're going to form the first Republic of China and actual attempts at, I'll call it democracy, but not really. Yeah. And actually a key player, uh, Yuan Chikai, is going to be the arguably the big winner in all of this. So the Boxer Rebellion in a lot of ways was, it was kind of just the big bang to go out on. And it's almost as if Dowager Empress Zixi kind of knew it, because she, like, like in her famous quote, if we're gonna go, if we're gonna go out, let's go out fighting at least. And, yeah. You know, save uh, our face, because I think she says in the quote, she like, how can I even see my ancestors in death if I didn't try to, to win? You know. Yeah. Well, going back to that traditionalist, a lot of her arguments were, had to do with the ancestors and things like that. Yeah, and she. That's why uh, they didn't want trains because the noise would wake up ancestors. And a real quote from her, yeah. Which, which I mean, is if you have those beliefs, that's fine, but at the same time, it's. You know, you, you see this wolf knocking at your door and you, you, your argument was to go out fighting but with no real plan, no strategy, no anything, and it just didn't work out well. So. Uh, it's, uh, it's really sad to say uh, the Qing dynasty had, like, particularly for the Sino-Japanese War, they purchased all of the necessary battleships uh, to be able to win. I mean, they dwarfed the Japanese, but ineffective... <laughs> Navy uh, officers, in effect, uh, corruption within the dynasty. They were basically um, screwing up the armaments. They were cheaply making, you know, the shells for the ships. So most of the shells were empty when they showed up for the war, and the officers had no idea. They actually had people scrambling to open them up to check before they would launch them. It's crazy. There, there is a, a famous saying in in, um, in for Chinese people that a lot of the officers would find that the shells were just concrete blocks. Like, they had a, a casing and there was concrete inside just to make it seem like there was something oh, in it. Oh, boy. All sorts of craziness. So, yeah, the Qing Dynasty is coming to an end. And um, you'll, you'll get to see the Russo-Japanese War. And then after that, the official end will come with the Xinhai uh, revolu uh, Revolution. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't wait to do the Russo-Japanese War. That's going to be a fun one, I think. So, I know people, for the audio listeners, this is coming on Psalm, so they're going to get the Box Rebellion, and then it's followed up by the Russo in the same package. And I apologize to the audience. I'm going to get comments when it comes out on YouTube. I tried to jam-pack as much as I could in an episode, so I literally spoke like I was Ben Shapiro, like, at two times speed. 
it's mm. it's rough and jarring and i realized after like i should have can't wait to hear all those names pronounced at well, double pretty, speed and uh, it's, 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 at, it's at double and, speed and, and and me trying to follow what the hell is happening i might have to watch a few times and it's going to be an exciting one because i already got hit by some uh media producers who didn't like me using clips from their many uh series and movies and stuff because i jam-packed this one with war footage this is like the biggest one i've ever done yeah. Well, just one thing I wanted to throw out there. I know we've said this in previous episodes, but if anybody has any specific questions or things they want us to delve in deeper in these discussions, feel free to leave a comment on the YouTube video itself because it gives us more of an idea of what people want to hear too Seriously. or if there's anything that needs more expansion or more detail. I mean, it... Uh, Particularly you audio listeners, there's really... There is no way to yeah. gauge anything. I, I just see the downloads, which are good. We're doing quite well on... Uh, all the main podcast servers and everything, but uh, I would love to hear from you. So if you can just go on that YouTube channel, subscribe, give me those sweet subscriptions so I can feed my two little hungry parrots, and uh, let us know what you want to hear. And uh, let us know about the speakeasies, because uh, it's kind of a venture, and I don't know if it's going to stay or not. It's uh, We're just exploring. Yeah. All right, this has been the uh, Pacific War Channel that covers 19th century Chinese history almost exclusively at this point. Over and out. <laughs> Take care, guys.